Welcome to another episode of the World Salon Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Du. Continuing from last time, our guest is Professor Stephen Cohen, an expert on environmental policy and sustainability. He is the Director of Research Program on Sustainability Policy and Management at Columbia University's Earth Institute and Vice Dean for the School of Professional Studies. On our last episode, we discussed pressing environmental challenges in both the US and China, including climate change and the advent of renewable energy. This time, we will focus on biodiversity, its importance and why it's often overlooked, collaborative policy approaches, and its efficacy in solving the climate and biodiversity crisis, unified standards to measure climate change and ESG progress, and finally, Biden's Inflation Reduction Act as a catalyst for the green transition. You know, the biodiversity crisis receives far less attention than the climate change, despite being an equally grave threat, according to the UN. So, so I guess my first question is, you know, COP15 is obviously very important. The, US list, the UN lists it as an equally grave threat. Why does it receive much less attention than the climate crisis? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think part of it is that the climate problem is easier to understand. Uh, it's a physics problem. Um, it's fairly straightforward. Uh, the biodiversity problem is far more complicated uh, and uh, not as well understood. I think in some ways uh, climate change has had uh, more sustained advocacy and, uh, and I think the, uh, you know, the, the sort of politics of it has been around for a long time and has, has been pushing it, but frankly, uh, I keep thinking they must have a better PR person uh, because biodiversity is, uh, it's basically the fabric of life on the planet. and so. You know, I think that we do need to pay more attention to it. You know, Columbia created a climate school. They didn't create a climate and environmental sustainability school. Mm. Uh, they should have, but the, you know, the, the thing that gets, has everybody's attention is climate change. Uh, I don't think that that is, you know, in any objective sense, the only problem we should be paying attention to. Mm. I see. So because of the lack of PR around this issue, a lot of people don't quite understand why is biodiversity so important? Many people you know, have the counter argument that, you know, why does it matter if a certain species of birds die out or a certain tree doesn't grow anymore? Why, why is this so important to, well, to our planet? Yeah, I mean, the, the question really is, do we have the technology to live without nature? And right now we don't. Maybe, you know, it's funny, if you look at, at uh, science fiction, you know, look at the Star Wars movies, oh, the, home, movies. the home planet uh, is a world city. There's no nature. Okay, they eliminated it, they eradicated it, and they're able to, to uh, transcend it. Uh, you know, the, we're not anywhere near that. So we're very dependent on the planet for food and for water and for air and we are biological creatures and we need all those things. And so the, when you eliminate uh, part species, very often that species is a predator or is itself uh, food for some other species. And so you, you end up upsetting a fairly fragile set of interconnections. And I think that's the, the deepest problem. Now we've already done that. Uh, in a fairly massive way, but uh, you know, we do want to retain enough of that balance so that our water and soil and air 
still can sustain human life. And I think the biodiversity issue is uh, those interconnections between the different uh, species and both animal and and uh, you know and plant life all requires a certain amount of you know both predators and uh, and food supply for up and down the food chain. And I think it's a it's very dangerous that uh, we've messed with that to the degree we have. I see. Can you think of any you know prime examples? Um... That, that people would know about or that, that you think are very important in showing this issue, a case in which we maybe eliminated a certain life or a certain part of an eco-chain and it has led to a terrible consequence? Well, I, I mean, the, one of the, the ways we've done this is what's called an invasive species, where, uh, you know, when the, um, you know, in the United States, when the, uh, uh, ships came from Europe, uh, the, the people carried with them viruses and protections from that virus, those viruses that they had uh, that had been developed over thousands of years in Europe. So uh, Europe had a black plague. They had millions and millions of people dying from, from uh, diseases that were highly contagious and the people that remained had genetically and through other mechanisms, develop resistance to that. They come to this country, in this hemisphere, and most of the Native Americans didn't die from gunshots, they died from, from disease, from viruses. And so uh, that's a, a, a principal problem of uh, you know, not paying attention to these issues. And, and COVID-19 is another example and so some of the other, uh, you know, bird flu and other kind of viruses that uh, they go from one species in one part of the world to another and people don't have the natural protection. Now again, in the case of COVID, what did we do? We developed a technology, a, a vaccine that gave us protection from it. We also developed ther therapies so that we could treat people that had it and it went from being a pandemic to endemic as it is today. Um, this is the problem with human interaction with the natural world. Uh, we, we're not going to give up jet travel, so we're going to travel. Uh, we're going to go from place to place, and we're going to carry diseases and viruses with us. And we now have to figure out ways of making sure that, that when those things uh, start to hit, that we contain them, and it doesn't become politicized that it becomes a, a world medical issue where we focus on containing the people that have it, developing therapies, and developing uh, ways of preventing it. So the lack of attention to the biological world you know, is part of what's happened. And you saw the multi-trillion dollar impact of COVID-19 on the world economy, and uh, you could imagine something worse. So th this is why issues of, of biodiversity are so important. You could end up with uh, a natural phenomenon that gets out of control that we just don't understand really impairing uh, human life. I see. So do you think this issue of biodiversity will catch on, you know, where, where more people pay attention to it? Or do you think that, you know, technology will advance to a certain degree where we could not really care about biodiversity? 
and we'll transition into like a city world like in Star Wars. Well, Where do you see this headed? I hope not. I mean, it could happen. Uh, it, it could happen that, that uh, we abandon the environmental ethic that tries to preserve the planet. Um, I don't know. I mean, um, I hope it doesn't happen that way, but it could. And we're certainly on that path. The question is whether we can preserve it. There was an interesting court case in Montana this past week where a bunch of, uh, of young people uh, sued uh, in order to uh, require the government to do what it says in their state constitution, which is protect the environment for them. Uh, and they won. And so there it's a question of whether an environmental ethic can be developed uh, and maintain so people value uh, the planet and, and nature. I mean, you know, it's, some of it's going to be human choice. I mean, we now have the technology. Instead of skiing, you can put on a virtual mask and have cold snow blow at you, and you might think you're skiing, you know. Uh, but it's not the same. Uh, at least to me, it wouldn't be the same. Maybe 100 years from now, people won't care. Uh, but I hope that they do. I see. But sometimes, you know, these environmental ethical concerns, you know, coincide or conflict with technological advancements. So in these cases, which do you think should take precedent? Do you think we should focus more on techno technological advancement while sacrificing certain biodiversities, you know, paying less, less attention to this? Or do you think we should focus more on our biodiversity? And well, I don't think it's a trade-off. I think you have to do both. But I do think we need to preserve uh, some land in its current state. So. In the United States, uh, we have uh, quite a bit of land set aside in national and state parks. Uh, here in New York City, we have parks that you can walk in where people uh, can see birds and can see plant life and so on. Uh, I, I think that we, uh, we need to preserve uh, as much nature as we can, and we can also concentrate our economic development to cities. I mean, this is actually one of the points that uh, I made and that uh, my colleague uh, Don Gua and I have in our second edition of the Sustainable City book, which is it's more efficient to concentrate human life in cities instead of spreading out all over the planet. Concentrate the human life uh, and their in densely settled uh, places. Preserve some of the nature uh, for both visiting and just for preserving ecosystems. You don't have to trade those off. And so a uh, sustainable city could be based on renewable energy and a circular economy. And, uh, and then you, uh, you're not losing anything. Then every once in a while, you want to take a trip to a national park, you can go do it, because they still exist. <laughs> That's actually very interesting. I think it's the first time I've heard that argument that, that in particular, urbanization has a benefit to the environment and to, to the surroundings. Because you get an economy of scale. I mean, I do think that eventually, uh, we're going to be, instead of mining the planet for natural resources, we're going to mine our waste stream. It's just going to be cheaper. You know, all those minerals that we now dump into, you know, landfills or we burn in incinerators, before we do that with the residue, use artificial intelligence and robotics to pick out of the waste stream the valuable metals and also to separate the food waste, which can easily be turned into fertilizer. And I think that's, that's the future. We're going to be doing more of that. Are there any specific technologies or discernible trends in technologies, 
technologies you see pushing us towards this direction right now is something that you see as very significant? Well, in the United States, uh, a majority of the waste is now treated and not sent to landfills. Now, it's treated either by recycling it or burning it for energy uh, or separating food waste. Some of it goes into something called an anaerobic digester, which can both generate methane but also generates nitrogen for fertilizer. Uh, the sewage waste in, in New York, uh, New York City, uh, is reprocessed as fertilizer. And so we can take these waste streams and turn them into products. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. Uh, we, we already see it with uh, rare earth metals. So uh, Tesla has, uh, you know, they've just sold it, but they have a, a battery uh, plant which takes old batteries and pulls out of it uh, the metals uh, for use. Uh, Apple now will give you some money for your old iPhone, and what they do is they take it apart and pull out of it the minerals that uh, are cheaper to take out of an old phone than to take out of the ground. Mm -hmm. So we're going to see more business models built around that uh, because, the, because it's cheaper. And, uh, and I think it has this nice side effect of not destroying the planet. I see. Uh, but there's still a lot of mining operations, especially in the Global South, where you have very resource-dense areas. That's not going to stop, right? They're still going to continue mining those? For, for a while. But, you know, they mine because there's a market for the minerals. Mm -hmm. But if I can take them, in other words, the product life of your computer or my phone or an appliance in my home has a certain limit. And when it gets to the end of that limit, what do I do with that product? Because most of the things that it's made of still work, uh, are still valuable. Maybe the, the motor doesn't work anymore, or maybe there's a new model that does more things. You take the old model and you pull out of it the resources. We're learning how to do that uh, more effectively, and I think you will also see, we'll also see business models where, like Xerox, uh, they lease their copiers. They don't sell them. And what happens is when your lease is up, they take the old one and they remanufacture it into a new one using about 80% of what's in the old one. So we're going to see more of that. Uh, and yes, we're going to, this is not going to happen overnight. I'm talking about a change that will take 20, 30, or 40 years. Uh, but it's, we're seeing the beginning of it right now. Mm, I see. And so one thing I'm very curious about is with COP15, over 200 countries ratified and signed the uh, you know, Convention on Biodiversity, Biological Diversity, the U.S. was one major holdout. What's the reason why the U.S. refuses to, to ratify and, and join this? Well, the United States Senate, which is where treaties have to be ratified, um, the, uh, you need a, a, a supermajority to do that, and there needs to be a broad consensus. And we've made in this country, unfortunately, environmental issues uh, partisan, and uh, international environmental issues is even worse. Uh, because they're somehow seen as an assault on our sovereignty, uh, which it's not, but that's how they're perceived ideologically. And so the U.S. has had problems uh, participating in, in these agreements. It's, it's unfortunate, um, and it doesn't help at all. So, so what's the main argument for people who are against you know, joining this convention? How, how do they justify you know, not being a part of an organization that preserves biological diversity? Well, I, I think their argument is that they don't want the United States to be told what to do by other places. And, of course, that isn't what, what happens anyway. Uh, 
if you look at any international treaty that works, it's always based on self-interest of the parties that sign it. And so it's definitely in our self-interest to do this, uh, it's just not perceived that way by uh, the ideologues that control us right now in the, in the Senate. Um, I don't know how long that will last. It, at the beginning of the environmental era in the 1970s, the issue was bipartisan. Um, really in the last 20, 30 years, it's become increasingly partisan, which is unfortunate because you know, everybody likes to breathe. Mm. Right. So, so these issues that become extremely partisan here in the United States, how do you see, see that playing out over the next five to 20 years? Do you think it'll become more partisan and it'll hinder our ability to, to pursue you know, good policies? Or do you think you know, people will ultimately come to their senses and realize these are indeed very important issues? I think as people directly experience the negative impacts, they change. So. You take a place like East Palestine, Ohio, where you had the train derailment and you had the toxic explosion, uh, and suddenly the people there want trains to be regulated, even though, uh, and, and you had the Ohio senators, both the Democrat and Republican, getting together uh, to sponsor legislation. I think when people see it, um, you know, in New York, we saw the orange sky because of the forest fires in Canada. Uh, the direct exposure to these environmental insults uh, changes people. Now, one of the problems with climate change as a policy issue was that uh, when we first understood it in the 1990s in particular, uh, the impacts hadn't hit yet. And also, the problems created everywhere. If I have a pollution problem in air and water, typically it was local, locally caused, and, or at least within the country, and you could solve it. Climate change requires everybody to, to act. And so for that to happen, uh, I think we have to think about uh, a, a level of change that is an order of magnitude more complex than uh, local change. Uh, and that's where I think technological innovation becomes important because uh, people want their cars, they want their airplanes, and they want to be able to do the things they want to do. So you have to somehow create a technology that gives them the same benefits without this environmental cost. I see. So technology is still at the core of the issue, something that can fundamentally you know, improve our environment without having major costs on you know, personal, sure. personal life. But what do you see as a structure that, that's going to bring this technology together? Do you see it as a UN convention? Do you see it as you know, certain sovereign government policies? How do you see this technology being placed? And what is a, you know, a prime example of that happening right now? Well, the, the United Nations plays a role. The international community plays a role. But it's largely in terms of raising consciousness and understanding. It, uh, and awareness. Same thing with climate change. It, these issues are not going to be solved because the UN passes an agreement. Uh, even when they do, nation states still get to do what they want to do. So it has to become a national self-interest in order for it to work. And I think there are reasons for nations to want to cooperate on issues like biodiversity and climate change. And uh, the, the hope is that people become more aware of that I think to some degree they have, some degree they haven't. Hopefully it'll increase over time. It certainly has increased in my lifetime. Uh, the environment used to be a fringe issue, it would be something that very few people paid attention to. Now it's a central issue. Uh, I saw the transition really take place when Barack Obama was the U.S. president. 
because typically when foreign countries get together, they talk about national security, they talk about economic growth. Now they also talk about climate change. At some point, I hope they add biodiversity uh, to that uh, discussion, but I think we are now seeing the beginnings of much more concern for environmental protection uh, than we saw before, uh, particularly, I think, in the United States and Europe with uh, carbon disclosure rules being, uh, which will soon be mandatory in this country for corporations that want to uh, sell stock on a public exchange. That's coming here, and that, is, that will create a profession inside corporations of people who focus on environmental impact and carbon disclosure. The analogy is during the 1930s when the Securities and Exchange Commission first required corporations to do financial reporting according to generally accepted accounting practices and audited returns and audited firms and regulated firms. So when you got information about a corporation's uh, financial performance, you knew it was real. That's now moving to environment. So the development of the CFO happened because of the SEC. Mm. The development of a chief sustainability officer, which we're seeing in many, many corporations, the importance of that person is going to grow once you have mandatory disclosure. And I think those are the kinds of government rules that can really have a ripple effect through uh, the economy and through environmental protection generally. I see. So one really interesting question I have is with accounting and the SEC, there's a generally accepted accounting practice, GAAP, there's the International Financial Reporting Standards, IFRS. With sustainability and, and this ESG world, there is no set standard. You know, you know, MSCI has their own evaluation methods, yeah. S&P has their own. Do you see uh, a potentially standardized you know, environmental... Oh, ab absolutely. The SEC rule, 500 page long, has that for carbon. That's the first step. Then they'll do it for other things. I mean, if you look at the early accounting rules in the 1930s, they're primitive compared to what they are today. We're going to see that happen now with environment. The European Union is doing, uh, has their own disclosure rules. And I think, you know, controlling access to public capital markets is really a way to influence corporate behavior. You know, before accounting, you know, investing in the stock market was like going to a casino. Mm. Uh, today, everybody has their own standards. You have all these NGOs developing their own environmental standards. It's ridiculous. It's not effective. Even though companies are being asked to do it, investors want to see it. And why? Because they worry about environmental risk. Uh, and to some degree, they care about the corporation's impact on the planet. Uh, there are some liability issues. Uh, if you damage uh, an environmental good, uh, you might get sued. You might create uh, problems. I mean, British Petroleum spent well over $10 billion after they leaked in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, we've seen that with many other environmental insults. So you know, I think that on a more crowded planet, People, companies and people have to pay more attention to these issues because it's just too easy f for us to damage our neighbors.
I see. But do you think there will be a backlash to enforcing certain environmental rules or disclosures? Because with financial accounting, it, it affects directly the, the foundations of a company, right? Its ability to make profits. Mm -hmm. But adding these environmental rules doesn't really affect that, which is why when BlackRock you know, said that they want to incorporate ESG into their investing philosophy, there was huge backlashes, and Florida pulled, pulled well, their, their funds from, from yeah, the company. Well, yeah, that's Florida. But there's three... These are three different things. So environmental impact is measurable and is very similar, frankly, to financial accounting. Now, social governance, social, uh, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, corporate transparency, and the impact of the company on the community, those are all good management practices uh, that you want to pay attention to, but they're not the same thing. So, you know, ESG is seen as one thing, but it's actually four or five things. Uh, they're all, as far as I'm concerned, elements of good management practice. So if you're a company and you don't pay attention to your environmental impact, uh, you're asking for it. First of all, it's pollution's waste, so why aren't you taking those, you know, what you're sending out into the air and into the water, why aren't you using it? You know, why are you throwing it away? That's one factor. And then if you impact your neighbor, you might end up getting sued by your neighbor. That's, so that's environment. Now, diversity, equity, and inclusion, we are in a global economy, and it's a brain-based economy. So we're in a competition to get the best, most talented people in our organization. If we're xenophobic, or we're homophobic, or we're gender biased, that means we're limiting the pool of brain power we can pull into our company, okay? If you do that, the company that doesn't do that will beat you because they're going to have all of that. So to me, diversity and inclusion is simply a matter of getting the best people and treating them well and promoting them according to their talents. So the idea of not having that, uh, it, to me, is a bad management practice. And then your impact, uh, you know, the board of your company, if it's all you know, white men or it's all male, then you're not getting women. You're not getting people from diverse backgrounds. You're not getting the perspective of a diverse group. Mm -hmm. So I'm on a corporate board. Uh, when I joined it, uh, it was all white men. Now there are women on it. There's, there's a, a person of color on it. It's a different board with different expertise and different exchanges of ideas. Same thing happens at the corporate level. And then finally, paying attention to your impact on the neighboring community. Why wouldn't you do that? When Columbia didn't do that, uh, we weren't able to expand to a new campus. We had to pay attention before we could get uh, the new campus built here. Um, when Amazon came in and wanted to build headquarters two in Long Island City, mm -hmm. they didn't pay attention to the local impact. They weren't allowed to build here. They had to go to Crystal City, Virginia. Okay, now they ended up adding thousands of employees anyway, but not in a single campus. The point is ESG is simply good management practice in a complicated world. And you know, labeling it this way, and you know, there's a problem. There, there are people who are for it for ideological reasons. There are people who are against it for ideological reasons. To me, it's just good management. You know, why, and, and I think the problem, and so you take particularly the environment side of it, and this is unambiguous. A company that is ignoring its environmental impact, to me, is a badly managed company. Now, everything humans do damages the environment. You can't avoid it. 
But to not pay attention to it is idiotic. And that's why you want this to be part of the management system. It's like, you know, why do you have financial accounting? You want to keep track of your expenditures. You want to, keep, you want to make sure that your investments are paying off. Now, the idea that somehow these environmental issues are extraneous and not related to profits is just not true. Uh, because uh, if, if I'm uh, producing, first of all, I'm in a place where the likelihood of fire or flood or hurricane is greater, and I'm the investor in that, I want to know that. That's a real risk, okay? And so climate carbon disclosure get, provides that, if you look at the SEC rules, uh, it's not just carbon, it's also environmental risk. So environmental risk and financial risk are intertwined, and I think the people that don't understand that or just don't understand the world they live in anymore. I see. Yeah, I have so many questions. One of them is more personal and not as on our topic. But in terms of a lot of ESG standards, right, a lot of companies pride themselves on having a 50-50 workforce, you know, male, female, um, and, and they, see that they see that as a very good thing because reporting standards tell them that, okay, if you have a 50% female workforce, that's, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But in certain industries like engineering where the applicant pool isn't exactly 50-50, you have a 70-30 split, do you think that certain you know, ESG reportings or certain standards have gone a little too far? Uh, in yeah, I think, I think that these numbers and ratings are idiotic, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and I really do, you know, the idea that somehow you... Are you know there's a like a top 500 for it's that's just silly uh, because it's situational. I mean every company, every organization faces a different kind of environment. The real question is: is it a principle of yours to be biased, or is it a principle of yours to be open to diversity? Now, if you are so, if you value diversity to an extreme that you don't pay attention to the quality of your workforce, that's that's you know that's not good management. But I'm worried about the other side, and and you know, uh, you know, in terms of graduate schools in America, I don't know about engineering so much, but uh, majority of the college and graduate students in the United States are women now, and so you know, the the only way they're not going to be a majority in the workforce is because of bias against them. Mm -hmm. So I I think the but I don't think that that, that this is where some of these uh, ranking systems I find just you know not related to management, not related to what companies should be, should be doing. Um, I think a lot of what you want to look for is the attitude of the people working there and are they trying to do as much as they can do in the context of what they do. There are some businesses that uh, are going to be harder to uh, reduce their pollution than others and there are some that will be easier. I see. So, but, but how do you quantify, you know, human behavior or, or their attitude? And which leads to my next question, because a lot of the current evaluation methods that looks at how well a company scores on its environment side is by looking at, okay, how much do they pollute? How much carbon do they use? How much water do they use? Mm -hmm. But oftentimes the companies, these energy companies that, you know, pollute the most right now are the ones that are investing in technologies to create a cleaner tomorrow, as opposed to, I don't know, a bank or a insurance services firm that, doesn't pollute because their business model doesn't, and they end up getting a very high yeah, well, you environmental have to rating. Look, you have, that's why you can't compare apples to oranges. You know, it doesn't make sense. But and take agriculture, which I think is actually much more polluting than any energy business is. And so, you know, uh, Land O'Lakes 
is the largest agricultural firm in the United States. And they have been focusing on using uh, satellite technology, drones, automation. Um, and what their goal is, is to make sure that all the water and pesticide and herbicide and fertilizer actually gets taken up by the plant as opposed to leaching into the environment. And so they've invented a form of precision agriculture where they reduce their cost dramatically of all of those uh, elements that help uh, grow a plant. They also have practices that allow the soil to replenish itself so they don't over uh, plant and they allow the land to uh, naturally replenish itself. Those techniques end up making them a lot more money uh, and they use less resources and they create less environmental damage. 80% of the water use in California is actually in agriculture and more than half of that water is wasted through evaporation. Mm -hmm. And so this is, this is the whole point. We can, by using uh, better technology and more creative and innovative techniques, we can figure out lots of ways of making a much more effective uh, agricultural system and industrial system. Now you have this area in Louisiana called Cancer Alley. All these chemical plants, they're all belching stuff. Why, why don't they figure out ways of taking that exhaust or those effluents and using them? You know, why is it going into the environment? To me, it's sloppiness and it's laziness. They haven't figured out a way to use it. There's a field of engineering called industrial ecology where they try to close the system so that uh, there is very little waste and, what, and what's not used directly in producing one product could be used to produce another product. And so this is uh, really just a question of committing yourself to being a little bit more creative than just sending it up the smokestack. I see. So again, technology seems like it's very, very important in the climate, you know, biodiversity, which speaking of which, in terms of the environment, other than the climate and the biodiversity, what's another factor or what's another field that doesn't quite get enough attention but is still really important? Besides biodiversity and... <clears throat> and climate change. Well, I mean, I think the, you know, water supply is a very important issue, um, which again, the technology of desalinization, of taking gray water and turning it into drinking water. We're seeing the big, those technologies already used, uh, building uh, infrastructure so that people uh, can have uh, running water wherever they live. Uh, that kind of, uh, that's a very, very important part of, of, uh, of environmental protection. I think also, you know, people are paying more attention to nutrition and wellness and physical fitness and those are all parts of what I consider to be the broader issue of sustainability. I see. And, you know, and with that, I think I want to transition to our, to our next topic, which is President Biden, who, despite you know, criticism from many advocates, has made substantial strides on the environmental side by securing you know, historic investment and creating pragmatic regulations to accelerate you know, the sustainability transition. So your article you know, the impact of the 15th Biodiversity Conference of Parties mentions the Inflation Reduction Act's $400 billion in renewable energy subsidies. You know, in your view, what provisions in the law are most impactful and how has this, uh, this subsidy affected the renewable energy field here in the U.S.? Well, there's, there's, there's money for microgrids, there's money for 
solar energy uh, for people to put it on their homes and for businesses. There's money for charging stations. There, uh, there's a variety of, of ways that uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Act are pumping money into the green economy. And interesting, what happens is when you pump some of the federal money in, then private money follows because it helps to create a market. So the, there's a tremendous amount. I mean, Biden is by far the most effective environmental president the United States has ever had. Uh, much, I mean, Jimmy Carter may have cared more, but he didn't do much. Uh, and Barack Obama may have cared more, but he had to deal with the Tea Party. And so he couldn't get much done. But Biden has accomplished quite a bit. And the other thing is, uh, I don't know if it's generally recognized, but every federal agency now has a chief sustainability officer. And in the White House, they created an office that coordinates them in the same way the Office of Management and Budget coordinates the budget offices in all of the agencies. So uh, they're also using their purchasing power uh, to buy renewable energy and, and to invest in energy efficiency. So I think they're doing quite a bit. Right. So the infrastructure bill invested 300 billion, over 300 billion in green infrastructure. You know, what specific projects or programs do you think should be prioritized and how is this investment being diverted currently? Well, I think part of it is in making sure that, uh, you know, we're putting, uh, we're making our cities more climate resilient so that they can deal with extreme weather events better. Um, New York has spent billions of dollars already uh, weatherproofing our shoreline and our tunnels and our energy system. Some of the funding is going to that. Some of the funding is going to uh, just investments in uh, modernizing the grid, and some of the investments actually in getting rid of lead water pipes and trying to modernize the water system. So, well, some of it is just basic bricks and mortar, just trying to get things, you know, moving again, mm. and trying to stimulate local investment. I see. So you also mentioned executive orders requiring federal agencies to reduce environmental footprints. You know, what sustainability initiatives would you like to see more of in that field? Well, some of what we're seeing, like the post office, is, you know, at first didn't want to buy electric vehicles, and now they are. Um, the, the federal government in particular owns lots of buildings, lots of vehicles, make them more energy efficiency, have them put in solar arrays, have them buy the batteries. It, and creating a market that will allow the prices of these things to go down so that then uh, it becomes more viable for private individuals to, to buy these things. Hmm. I see. And do you think the U.S. is effectively initiating these policies right now? It's starting. And I think you add to that what companies are doing, what universities are doing, what hospitals are doing, institutions. And you know, we're definitely seeing the beginnings of the green economy. It's been going on for about a decade now, and it's starting to accelerate. I see. And, and what do you see as the biggest force in pushing this acceleration to a green economy? Is it, you know, a technology shift, perhaps, or is it the uh, government's reduction inflation bill? It's everything working together, but I think a lot of it is companies starting to see the money that be made in the green economy. So why did General Motors and all these other companies invest billions of dollars in electric vehicles? Because A, they see the regulation coming, and B, uh, they see the market attraction to these to the vehicles. They uh, they're cheaper to run, they last longer, they have fewer moving parts, and uh, and I think you're be they they understand that this is a product line that the government wants them to get into, but that they could actually make money in, and that 
people may be replacing their internal combustion engine vehicles um, perhaps a little more rapidly than they would have because of the, uh, the attraction of the new technology. And the story I sometimes tell is, you know, in 1905, the biggest environmental problem we had in New York City was horse manure. Mm -hmm. We were literally knee-deep in it. By 1915, it was gone because the motor vehicle had taken over. And so we didn't tax the horse, just the motor vehicle was a better technology. It was cheaper, it did more things, um, and it, uh, it had a lot of market appeal. And we've seen the same thing with electronics. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, you want to see a movie at home, uh, you go to, you know, rent a video at a video store. Then it was a DVD. Then they mailed you the DVD. Then they invented streaming video. You know, people used to, people have cable TV. Most kids don't have it anymore. They simply download the shows they want to watch through a wireless network. And so you see the technology advancing and the consumption patterns changing as a result of uh, technological innovation. Mm -hmm. I see. I think that, that makes a lot of sense. So the technology, again, very, very, very important. It, it comes down to it over and over. I mean, the problems are caused by technology, mm -hmm. but they're fixed by technology. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what, what we've seen. The question is, how do we develop it? And how do we move it quickly enough to deal with the problems that are created? I see. You know, I personally believe that technology is probably the most important factor too. In fact, a lot of the times my friends ask me, you know, how do we fix issues in, you know, um, income gap? Or how do we fix issues in, in company diversity? I would say technology is the solution. But how come a lot of people don't see the technology as the solution? Well, it's not as, you know, widespread. A lot of people say policy is very important you know, bilateral cooperation, you know, why isn't technology more at the forefront? Why is that not the argument all the politicians are saying? Well, I think that, first of all, politicians think that public policy is the most important factor. I'm not a political scientist, I used to think that. But then when I looked to say, see, where does change really happen? What's actually made change? You know, uh, what changed how people eat? Well, we invented refrigeration. We invented refrigerators where people live. We invented air conditioners, automobiles. You know, these things have had the huge, uh, huge change on people's behavior. And these things, mm -hmm. these smartphones, have had a massive impact. You know, people spend, you know, <coughs> so in 1974, I went to Europe after I graduated from college. And I didn't phone home. I wrote little letters when I was in college. I would go into the hallway and make a collect call home. It cost $10 for five minutes, which today would be $200. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my family is in touch all over the world through, through FaceTime and through uh, Zoom, and it costs nothing. And so it means that you can travel and still stay in touch with your network all over the world uh, on a real-time basis all the time. It's massively changing human behavior. You know, so people, you know, you know, in the global economy, if you want to send money home to, in the developing world, you know, remittances are a huge part of capital formation in the developing world. It's made easier because you might be living in New York working on a menial job, but you're able to send half your money home and, you know, it allows your, fa you know, your family to eat and to, you know, to thrive. So. I think what you're seeing is these technologies, air travel, which has gotten 
incredibly inexpensive compared to 50 years ago. Uh, the internet, uh, smartphones, it's, it's made the world shrink. So this idea that somehow you can keep people apart, uh, that you know, this sort of xenophobic trend uh, that you see in some countries, a nationalist trend, now, this is a, a blip as far as I'm concerned because uh, the technology will continue to bring people together. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, New York would have maybe a million or two million tourists a year. We have over 60 million a year now. People travel, they want to see places all over the world. You know, people travel, you know, right? You know, because of COVID, people stopped for a while, but now it's, you know, it's exploding again. And uh, I mean, China has you know, incredible natural wonders and really interesting cities and, you know, just a, you know, and, uh, thousands of year culture to explore and people want to see it, you know, I see. and so that uh, I don't think it's stoppable. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously the world has changed so much in the past, but as a political scientist, was there a moment when you decided, okay, so maybe policy wasn't quite the end-all be-all about technology. Was there a particular story there that when you realized? Well, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with our inability to deal with climate change. You know, because the climate issue is a global issue. And as a, someone interested in environmental protection, you know, and I saw policies like carbon taxes proposed, and I knew that they would never get those. Uh, and so it start, I started to think about you know, what are the positive things government can do to facilitate the private behaviors that are necessary? And most of the, the work that I've been involved in in public policy has been in the environment where we regulate companies and individuals. And so I started, really almost at the beginning of my career, I developed a uh, regulatory strategy that said, if we want to encourage people to do things, one way is we can simply say, don't do something, okay? But another way is to educate them to why it's a good thing, we can pay them to do the good thing, or we can help figure out incentives so they do the, new, the good thing on their own. And so I think I, I started to see that public policy certainly has a, a big impact, but most of what it tries to do is to leverage other behaviors and uh, when you, once you see that in action, uh, you see how important, particularly the private players are in all of these. Got it, got it. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I think that's, the, that's our podcast. Okay, Yeah, great. thank you. In this enlightening episode of the World Salon Podcast, Professor Steve Cohen has illuminated the intricate relationship between policy, technology, and environmental concerns. From the potential transformation of conservative views on fossil fuels due to the rising affordability of sustainable energy sources to the impact of partisan bargaining on environmental decisions, Professor Cohen's insights have offered a nuanced perspective. We've learned that personal experience can reshape attitudes towards climate change, while technology remains the key for addressing its global impact. Additionally, the podcast explored the emergence of the green economy driven by both regulation and market demands, underscoring technology's historical significance in both creating and solving challenges. As we wrap up, we extend our appreciation to Professor Cohen for sharing his expertise, inviting listeners to continue exploring crucial global issues with the World Salon Podcast. This has been an episode of the World Salon Podcast. To learn more about environmental policy and sustainability, please visit our website at www.world-salon.com. Please subscribe for more expert insights. Thank you for listening.